Welcome to another episode of the JMS Podcast. Today's guest is Gary Singh. Gary Singh is a columnist for the Metro newspaper here in San Jose. And he has done numerous works as well. He, he writes poetry. And uh, he's a great guy. And this guy I see everywhere downtown. And uh, he's always, well, around me he's quiet. But, you know, he's a real cool guy to talk to. Very interesting character, most definitely. Today we talk about his book, The San Jose Earthquakes, A Seismic Soccer Legacy. It is available on Amazon, so check it out on Amazon. Buy it. It's a great book. I've read it, and it was an easy read. It took me uh, only a couple of days, but it was very intriguing, especially if you live here in San Jose. Just the history of that soccer club and the history of the city, how they're connected, really brings into light a lot of interesting factors worth checking out. So, yeah. Tune in soon for a conversation. At the end of a conversation, I'm going to put on a song that is the official San Jose Earthquakes song currently. The theme song. It's by the old firm casuals. It's called Never Say Die. You could purchase the song. It's a great song. I loved it. I purchased it. Um, it's called Never Say Die. And I'm going to put a link to the Bandcamp page on the descriptions if you're listening on SoundCloud. But on iTunes as well. Uh, it's a great song. Tune in after our conversation for that song. It will rock your socks off. It, it literally rocked mine off. Like I can't even find my sock anymore. On other news, I officially launched my Indiegogo campaign for my web series. Uh, it's called Looking for St. Jorge. And what is this web series about? Let me tell you. It's about a stand-up comedian from San Jose trying to make it to the big leagues. At the same time, he's looking for a bit of love. For more information, go to the uh, Indiegogo page at Looking for St. Jorge. Uh, there's my pitch video. And what I plan to do with this web series is Looking for St. Jorge is code for Looking for San Jose. So this web series will be based among the comedy scene here in San Jose and also the music scene each episode I like to bring in a comedian uh, a local of course a local comedian a local musician performer song and I'm looking at something along the lines of Louis CK meets it's always sunny in Philadelphia because the big butt of the joke is really about some guy from San Jose trying to compete with comedians from Santa Cruz or San Francisco and LA so please check it out uh, looking for St. Jorge at Indiegogo. Also, check out the Looking for St. Jorge official Facebook page for more stuff. And I already got one person who've already donated to the Indiegogo campaign. Uh, I got to give a shout out to Pauline Guest. She donated $1,000 to the production. Thank you, Pauline Guest. You are the woman. That's what you are. You're amazing. Pauline Guest, she's an old friend of mine, she's from Australia. And I got to tell you, she is the sweetest thing. I swear to God, the sweetest thing. Thank you, Pauline. I cannot thank you enough. It's having friends like her who have faith in my work that really inspire me to continue and strive for perfection. And I assure you, once this web series is made, it is going to be something that's unique and something that that's definitely tries to capture the San Jose scene as far as the, the comedy scene and the music scene and in general, the entertainment scene. And I swear to God... It's going to happen no matter what. And Pauline Guest, you just made this one step forward towards that direction. So thank you for donating. I, I wish you the best. I hope to see you soon. Miss you. But for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, please check out the Indiegogo campaign. I can't say enough. If you don't have money, it's okay. Just share it. Please share it. Uh, and it's it's the theme is San Jose, which is kind of... Interesting that this podcast episode is about San Jose in some ways. So that's interesting. Uh, it's destiny. That's what it is. Again, one more time. Indiegogo pa- page. Looking for St. Jorge. Web series. This podcast, I'm not sure if you noticed yet, but this podcast is expanding. and I'm doing this new thing called the JMS Podcast Sound Sessions. I'm recording, it's almost a, I'm recording a documentary style of uh, individual musicians, local musicians, of course, playing music in outside locations. It's on YouTube. 
So search for Jameis Podcast on YouTube. And I, I got a brand new video. It's by a musician named Israel Sanchez. He plays a great song. And please show some love to the videos. Um, I'm a little nervous. Uh, YouTube comments can actually hurt my feelings. So, but if I, do, I hope I do a good job with this one. There's not as many uh, shitty YouTube comments. But I don't think so because they're great musicians, great music, and stuff like that. So check it out. JMS Podcast Sound Sessions. Support the local music scene. And this is just one more thing to check out. All right. Before we go to the conversation, from the reminder, please follow JMS Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. And if you have any questions, concerns, or or heck, maybe there's someone in the community that wants to be on this podcast to talk about whatever, uh, just email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Let's get on with our conversation with Gary Singh. Uh, I guess insecurity I guess it was a quarter life crisis well that's okay <laughs> in my case it's not a midlife crisis it's a life crisis life crisis it started when I was born oh no it's a joke it's, it's okay. a joke oh. well Gary Singh glad to have you here uh, before we get to your book The San Jose Earthquakes A Seismic Soccer Legacy uh, I'd like to know more about you because I feel you are like very involved with the community here in San Jose. I see you everywhere downtown. And I mean that in a good way. I, I don't mean like, oh, man, that guy. I'm going like, oh, it's that guy. H- how did that start? And you're, I know you're currently a, a writer. Well, I don't own a car. I haven't owned a car in 15 years. And um, there's no um, political statement that I'm trying to make. It's just that, you know. By not owning a car? Yeah. I mean, 15 years ago, I just, I just sold my last the car that I had 15 years ago, I was broke. It was broken down and falling apart, and I didn't have um, a job or a place to live, so I just sold it and got rid of it. And then, when I moved back to downtown San Jose at that time, um, I just never bought another car really. So there's no. If you live downtown, there's no reason to own a car. It's pretty. You know, you can walk wherever you need to go. And then, I and I don't have the kind of Jaw. Even when I was on full-time staff at Metro, I didn't have the kind of job that you had to sit there at a desk all day long. You have to go out and look for stuff and meet people and talk to stuff. So it's just, and I can't sit still anyway, so there's just no reason to own a car. And I'm always moving. And then it just unfolded in a way that um, the best way to explore any city, no matter where you are, is on foot. You know, so I wound up writing a lot of columns and even stories about how to explore the city on foot and, and get into the guts of San Jose. And um, those particular columns wound up being the most popular ones, and are still the most popular ones. You know. Um, because no one else in the whole city of San Jose walks anywhere, you know. Everybody's surgically attached to their cars, you know. So, and they've never really explored the city outside their own three-block radius of where they live, you know. So, it became a very easy thing for me to do. And then the whole concept of walking just is a part of what I turned into. You know, you know I could resonate with that a lot because yeah. when I transferred to San Jose State University, my car broke down. And I was panicking. I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to commute? I was like, oh, my God, I never, I don't hardly ever commute with public transportation. And you hear horror stories about the light rail. But once I started doing it, it's like, it's not so bad. And if anything, I've met, I've met so many interesting people by commuting via light rail, via bus, via walking around downtown. Yeah. As opposed to having a car and you just walk from your class to the garage or you walk from the restaurant to your garage and then leave. I, there's something about walking around your your city 
that that resonates with me and, and discovering what it has to offer. Well, San Jose State, um, until I went there too, you know, I still live in the neighborhood, or at least until he raises the rent again, then I won't live in the neighborhood anymore. But I mean, San Jose State has is has always been until recently has been a predominantly commuter school you know like you said everybody drives in and then goes to class and then leaves you know and then and um the majority of people until recently it was like that but that's changing a lot they're building a lot more housing student housing on campus and off campus so and the whole problem for decades was that you know as downtown had deteriorated into a you know a ghetto and a slum essentially in the 70s we're talking about and the 80s probably you know that San Jose State was there was never any connection between the college and the neighborhood so all of that is dramatically changed in the last I don't know 20 years or so so walking and there's more students going out and doing stuff in the neighborhood you know so it's it's all part of a bigger picture that where they want to urbanize the whole neighborhood and make it livable for primarily people that have money but you know mm. that's the plan and did you study journalism in uh no no no, no not god no um <laughs> i was a no i was god a, no you're a journalist right now wouldn't you consider yourself a journalist well, no, I was uh, there. I had no plans to be a writer. I mean, uh-huh. I was a. I studied music. I played piano all of my essentially adult life, and I was a music student. That's what my degree is in. Um, I was a composer and an audio guy and a sound engineer and computer audio person, and that was my bachelor's degree. And then, and then I fell into another job with a music professor at San Jose State, and um, this is in the '90s. And then I got a master's in. Um, what was essentially a creative arts degree, you know, music, art, and creative writing, sort of. And um, then at the end of the 90s, I essentially, is how I, I just started writing a lot, and that grew out of just doing a bunch of different, trying to do a bunch of different things in college, and then I just wound up writing about everything instead, and I wanted to travel a lot, and that's really what I wanted to do, is be a travel writer, but I never really was able to break into the seen very much but that's how I started out wanting to be a writer was through traveling and then do you have, uh, and then the metro position came up somewhere uh-huh. around 2001 I think and I started out as an intern or a paid intern like a assistant you know clerical administrative writing a few blurbs here and there and then within I think like a year they had hired me on as full or maybe a year and a half they had hired me on as full-time staff and then I was already freelancing other places and then the writing just grew and grew from that point wow uh so you went from music to to writing yeah I went from one form of poverty to the next basically (laughs) is what happened (laughs) that's one way of looking at it (laughs) well I'm watching your music background now. Were you raised in a household full of music? Never. No one on either of my mom's or dad's families were creative types or musicians at all. What did your parents do? My mom was a career librarian. Um, she still lives in the same house I grew up in. My dad was, before he passed away, he was a mathematician, or he was a computer programmer, basically. He worked on IBM mainframes in the 70s and would bring home punch cards and stuff. And he came to the U.S. from India in the 50s. Actually, my dad was one of the first Indian people in San Jose in the late 50s. There was pr- there was probably two or three people from India that were even here at that time. Oh, and your mom's not from India? No, my mom's white. Huh? Oh. I'm exactly half and half, half yeah. Anglo, half Indian, or half Western, half Eastern. And she was from the valley here? She's from San Jose, yeah. Wow, so you were born and raised in San Jose? Yeah. Everything I've ever written is about that. You know, I think that's yeah, that's pretty much the yeah. And it and you grew up wanting to be in music. How did that happen? Like, where did that concept even came to you? Considering you were surrounded by a lot of technology and, and knowledge, as far as like um, mother being a librarian and such. I don't remember really it's really weird I don't remember ever actually learning how to read music I just always remember knowing how to read music you know um I just basically I started playing keyboards and organ about maybe age eight or so we bought a 
uh, one of those cheesy Lowry home genie organs from Stevens Music on Little Glen, which was this historic music retail store that went away in the 80s. But it would everybody that played music in the 60s and 70s and 80s bought their stuff there, you know. Um, so I started about age eight or somewhere around there, and then we got a piano soon after that, and then I just never stopped playing piano, basically. Well, I'd stopped as soon as I'd finished studying it in college, and I never went back to playing, but hmm. but I don't remember, really. And then once you got to journalism, you mentioned that you didn't, you love to travel. Yeah. But I recall that you had an award for, for being a traveling journalist. Uh, I, well, I was a member of Society of American Travel Writers for a long time, or several years, and then they have all these different competitions every year, and then I won an award for a, one of their awards for a travel piece I did for an in-flight magazine. It was a story about Palo Alto, basically. It was just a bunch of um, historical Silicon Valley tech-related sites, and you know, like the Steve, like the Steve Jobs garage and uh, the Google house and the uh, Hewlett Packard you know, garage, all that stuff. It was just, you know. So you, I mean, it's the SATW was the group. They award different uh, twenty or thirty different awards for all sorts of things every year. You know, so it was one of those awards. So you've seen Silicon Valley grow from its inception. Not its inception. Its inception would be, you know, hundreds of years ago. But I mean, hundred years ago, this was a tech uh, hub as well. Well, what do you mean? Well, well, I'm talking about the the, the tech. I'm talking about like uh, Apple, yeah, Microsoft. yeah. I mean, we, my people of my generation, we grew up right alongside the PC revolution. You know, that was mm -hmm. really, that's the cool thing about still living here is that, you know, Steve Wozniak start, helped start, him and Steve Jobs started Apple. Nolan Bushnell started Atari. So you've got those guys who started the PC industry and the video game industry, respectively, who were both completely broke when they, who were all of whom were broke when they started these industries. You know, they were not people, they were not a bunch of t hipster, techie shitheads who live in $4,000 apartments in San Francisco. They were broke dudes who lived in the suburbs, you know, like us, kind mm -hmm. of, you know. Yeah. Gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. do you feel the current, um, I guess hipster do shitheads are taking something away from the magic when it comes to technology and entertainment. Mm, I not it's kind of it's that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I mean, um, what Silicon Valley used to be about was trying to make the world a better place. Okay, nowadays it seems like most of the douchebags who are doing this are basically a bunch of idiots who just want to write phone apps so they can get their potato chips delivered at, at four in the morning or something <laughs> yes. you know so but that seems to be a common rhetoric among these startups these days is yeah. changing the world making the world a better place and none of them are you know really they're just a bunch of you know people that, will, that are look for, looking for a quick fix or w something which is know. why when that uh hbo show came out silicon valley um it just, I, I think it was that more special to me because I was like, they fucking get it. They figure that a lot of these people, they, you know, they talk the big talk about saving the world, but they're just egotistical, really. Yeah. That's pretty funny. I thought it was funny. It was a great show. Have you seen that show? No, I don't watch any of that stuff. Yeah? I mean, I yeah. mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I, the stuff I write about and the stuff I concentrate about are more of what's connected to the guts of San Jose or the guts of the different suburbs or cities that are in the South Bay. Okay, and then once in a while I'll write about stuff that it has a tech component to it, you know, but I don't cover the, the, the tech industry as a beat writer or anything. I keep up with it, you know, and um, a lot of the reporters that cover it are really irritating these days, you know, because they mm -hmm. tend to just be... PR shills for all the new products and they're not, you know, again, not hardly any of which are going to be here two years from now anyway, the products, I mean, you know, so it's, I don't know, but, so I don't follow, the, I, there's no reason for me to watch that TV show, it's just, I mean. So what interests you the most when you write, when what, it comes to San Jose and its guts? Is there a certain field that you're geared towards more to? What do you mean? I mean, is there a certain, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not field, but an area of interest. Or do you feel like you're all over the place and, you, and you're trying to get a capture every little community there is here in San Jose? Well, for Metro, you mean? And in general. Well, I mean, for Met, the column I write in Metro every week is, um, is I mean, 
people often ask me who you know what how do you talk about what well i mean you know i mean i write about the san jose condition that's what i write about what is the San Jose condition? Because you me, have to you have to go read about a hundred of columns, then you can tell me what you think it, okay. I write about. I mean, you know, because I, I think of a lot of things. It's like asking a painter what's the painting about. Well, I don't know. You're, I mean, or it's like asking a poet what the poem means. Well, you read it. What do you think it means? That's my answer. You oh, know? Okay. So I mean, so I, I write poetically, I, 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 not I should, journalistically. You know, I should read your 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 work more and and interpret it what I feel. Got it. That's easier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would that would be easier. That would make a lot more sense. Well, I, mean, I mean, I write about the San Jose condition, the guts of the city, whether that's some old guy who's a car lot. Do or whether that's a 94 year old guy who's owned the car lot for decades, or whether that's the technology enthusiasts who are doing things to help the poor people in Africa, or whether it's something the soccer team is doing, or the hockey team is doing, or whether it's uh, some uh, rock band from the 60s that is getting back together, or I mean, anything that's going on. I mean, I do what any newspaper columnist does, I just write about what's going on around town, you know. But and I've actually have read a lot of your articles yeah. from the Metro, and I I like the way you write. Well, thank S- you. Something about the way you write, I find very, uh, and I, I, in your current book, I find it as well. You have a certain style that I find very personal, very intimate. It's almost as if you're a friend of mine and you're sending me these notes, like, and, and, as opposed to when I read someone's article, it's like, okay, it's, it's obviously, for me, there's like a wall. It's like, okay, someone academic or yeah. whatever is writing this. But you're, it's like, you keep it very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, lack of a better word real I guess it's more like yeah this guy gets it this guy talks my language he's not you know using such too many big words that gets confusing it's like he he gets right to the point well that's probably the best compliment I could ever ask for you know and a lot of people have said that but and it's I'm just very you know grateful that you know I'm allowed to still do this every week and that there are people I've always said that there are lots of interesting people in San Jose, and but you just have to go find them, okay? You know, That's and very true. most people grow up here not thinking there's anything interesting here. What and do you think it, that is? As long as I'm still living here, I'm going to write that. As long as I'm still living here, I will write that page, and you know, and at least just the one of the goals is just to show people that there are interesting ways to contemplate this place. It's not just it is parts of it. It are suburban wasteland America and you know obviously but there are lots of things in between the cracks that are interesting to mm-hmm. contemplate and to give you a, people a sense of place you know when they may not have already had that you know because most people who grow up here don't feel like there is any sense of place you know why do you feel there's such a disconnect between people living here and the community well it's suburbia you know i mean this place was never supposed to be a city okay you know i mean in 1955 the population was something like 90,000 people okay you know you either worked in the canneries or you or or you worked for whatever your parents's shop was there was no such thing as anything else here okay you know it was you know there was service industry and or there was canneries you know and um and then it suddenly grew and then the whole concept that you, everyone knows of you know post world war 2 suburbanization of america yada 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 that's what happened it just grew and grew and grew and then you know you can't grow up in you know wastelands of subdivisions and you know have any kind of identity or anything i mean all this has been written about for decades you know but yeah. i mean which resulted to people having more cars and not being yeah. able to walk around yeah yeah so you can't grow up with any identity in a place where you just don't where every house is a tract house and uh, every lawn is tidy and looks exactly the same and you know you, there's no way to do that you know I mean, anybody who grows up in parts of any part of South San Jose, you know, the the first thing you want to do is to get on the bus or you're getting your car and go somewhere else to find something to do. Okay, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's you That's can't possibly true. have be connected you know, if you grow up like that. I mean, it's just suburbia in general. Okay, I'm not saying anything profound. You know, this mm-hmm. is just what it's like growing up in suburbia. Do you feel it's changing? I feel it's changing a bit now that there's uh, more housing development towards downtown. There's more housing downtown, but that's just going to be for people that can afford it. You know, oh, it's, uh, I mean, it's not going to, I mean, they're thinking that all the tech yuppies are going to move into there, but that's not what's going to happen. You know, I mean, they're, the people that are going to move into San, the, to downtown are going to be young people that can't afford San Francisco or Mountain View. That's basically what's going to happen. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, you're San Jose, you know. It's a- right, right. <laughs> 
right. That's <laughs> exactly what's choice. going to happen. Everybody sort of, you know, knows this, but, you know. Which is a shame because, you know. But we'll see, you know. I mean, I mean, every, they've been trying to turn downtown San Jose into something you, substantive for decades, okay. You know, they tried putting the shopping mall, you know, right there by the, you know, in 25 years ago, the upscale shopping mall, and that flopped. So they closed that down and turned that into the pavilion. Or it's still, you know, I mean, that's the building that. Um, the SAP Center? No, 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 no. Uh, What's you know where the Starbucks is across from the Camera Twelve and all that? That whole giant building oh, that wow. was that was a shopping mall twenty five years the, ago. There the, was the old Opera Theater. No, uh-huh. no, no. Um, the building between San Fer- sec- first and second San Fernando. You know the, where the parking lot is and. Okay. The Indian fast food place. Okay, I get, I get where House of Siam used to be, and um, that whole entire building was a, a indoor, was a outdoor shopping mall with wow. upscale stuff. I did not know that. Oh yeah, that's you can ask anybody that that. Which is ironic because we have a lot of shopping malls in, in South Bay in general. You know. The, well, they no, they wanted to put an upscale mall in the middle of downtown San Jose and you know shops like Victoria's Secret and all this other stuff that was all in there and then nobody went so the whole thing just flopped and they filled it in filled in the building and made it what it is now so th- so I mean point being they've done all these things for decades to try and make downtown San Jose into something substantive and this whole now this whole recent phenomenon now of finally building all of the high-rises and developing all these things which they should have done a long time ago this is basically their last final chance to get people to go to downtown San Jose. So if this doesn't work, then it's, I mean, every, this has been going on since the fifties. You know, so this whole thing now of the building, the high rises, that's their last final chance of trying to make downtown San Jose into something. And if this doesn't work, then it's over. It's and over. That's it. That's know? it for San Jose. So that's why they're really stressing it. Wow. I, I didn't know the stakes were so high. Well, it's not, you know, the, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I don't know what the stakes are, but that's, you know, they want to have a real city, you know, so they're going to try and keep trying. No, I, I mean, that helps. That helps. That definitely helps. But for the most part, I'm optimistic. Maybe it has to do with my age. I don't know. But, uh, but I see a lot of organic, uh, yeah, it's definitely. It's, no, don't get me wrong. It's definitely a lot better now than it used to be. I mean, I mean, if you go back to 25 years ago, there was it was a, it would you know the the whole downtown area was still pretty much boarded up and broken down and everything, you know. So yeah, that's true. I, I, no, I, it's definitely better. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's failing. I'm just saying that you know it's um um it's definitely you know they're just going to turn it into something that only you know. Up, up, upper class people can afford, you know. So, and so, meaning people, all the interesting people like the artists and such are going to be forced out, and <laughs> the ones who are broke. Yeah, <laughs> it happens everywhere, you know. Hi, right, Gary. I like to move on to your book, "The San Jose Earthquakes: A Seismic Soccer Legacy." Um, I've read this. I bought this on Amazon, and I I enjoyed the book very much. I'm not kissing your ass here. I like I thoroughly did. And, Thank you. And two feelings came out for me. Two feelings. First, I felt so fucking proud to be part, like, to live in the area where such an amazing story out of this uh, soccer club came out of, or a football club, um, to some people out there who are not in the United States. And at the same time, shame. Shame that I was not involved. Shame that I, I, I through my teenage years, you know, knew about it, but never really took the opportunity to really f- discover it further and become a real fan. I got yeah. for me growing up, especially like playing soccer and having family who were big soccer, mostly Mexican teams. Yeah, I would have thought that having a a pretty fucking great home team would would have us you know be big fans, but we were not, and I feel ashamed of it. It's like the the amount of hard work blood sweat and tears put into the soccer club I was like I can't believe I just you know took it for granted yeah well that, that San Jose is like that you know I mean the majority of people that live here don't know what there is going on here I mean you shouldn't feel ashamed about it but you know um and the team wasn't always good okay I mean for the majority of it it, it was they've 
for a good portion of the 40 year history it's been unwatchable <laughs> okay you know i mean you know and, and you know and and the whole um and there's been a lot of peri- a lot of intermittent stretches of several years at a time when we had the greatest team in the country okay you know mm-hmm. um it wasn't the flashiest team and it wasn't a bunch of you know retired fashion models like new york or los angeles but we this was always a working class team that fought for each other on the field and um and it's directly as you read is directly tied to the whole problem of san jose not being taken seriously as a real city to begin with which is completely part of the whole history you know so them having that underdog feeling of yeah. the working class is what really attracted to me yeah. when reading this. I was like, you know, because I relate a lot to that, and I see that coming from a blue collar family, coming from you know working the kitchens of San Jose, serving these people. I was like, you know what? Considering that there's a team out there that they came from that, they're not the flashiest, like you said, they weren't the prettiest, but God damn it, they had heart. And something like my screenwriting skills, like you know what. This truly reads out like like a great film. Well, it should future. be a film. I mean, I I would hope somebody someday would perch would per, would option the film rights for this. I mean, I, that was in the back of my mind all along. It's definitely has that you know slap shot hockey film kind of feel to it. In fact, that's even mentioned in there. You know, but um, maybe someday. You know, I mean, I'm not a you know screenwriter. Writing for the screen is a whole different thing than yeah. writing for the page. You know, but um. I think it. I mean, a lot of people have said that it would make a great movie. You know, it doesn't you know? So I mean, hopefully, even someday. So, what attracted you to this subject? Well, I've lived the whole story, and the whole and the stadium was opening last March, so it was a perfect time to tell the whole story. You know, after growing up with the original era in the seventies and having the whole league, you know, collapse, and then w- having the, a new league, you know, come along twenty years ago and not wanting to acknowledge all the history of all these places and same thing happened in Portland and Seattle, you know, um, and Vancouver, you know, so, and then having to sit through all these heartbreaks and ups and downs and things like relocating a team and all those other stuff. And then last year, finally, I wanted to write the book for a couple years, but last year it just wound up being, the timing wound up being perfect. The stadium was opening this year and then I found a, a, small enough publisher to do it and then it just everything fell into place so it was just perfect timing basically it felt right right yeah and a lot that happens with fiction writers a lot just as you're writing the story and then all the characters start behaving in ways that you think it it, it just all fits perfectly and like you're channeling it from somewhere else you know and that's what happened with this you know all these things happened in the course of let's see, August, September, October of last year that just wound up writing a book for me, you know, basically. And that's what you saw toward the end of it, you know. Yeah. And the great thing about it is it really goes through the different characters that yeah. that, that came and went. And specifically, uh, such characters that were superstars in their home countries, of either Scotland yeah, uh, such as George Best. Yeah, he was from Northern Ireland. Oh, Northern Ireland. There's three Scottish guys on the cover. They weren't um, the middle guy. He was a superstar, Jimmy Johnstone. Uh, but the other two guys. Well, I fucked up this interview. I just confused an Irish with no. The, with it's the okay. Scott. No, it's okay. <laughs> but anyway, but George Best. Yeah. And he and, and you mentioned his book that he was really one of the first rock and roll type of athletes. Uh, celebrity kind of status. Well, he well he was the first rock star football player, definitely. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., we had people like DiMaggio and all that, but it was nowhere near the level of George Best. I mean, he was, you know, he rose he rose to glory at right as the Beatles were rising to glory in the '60s, and he looked like them. And he yeah. had long hair like them. The women all were in love with him. The guys were all jealous. Um, you know, and he, there was no... And again, you have to understand, in the 60s, the, the, the soccer or uh, football in England was entirely a, a rough working class sport, okay? There was no such thing. I mean, people slugged each other, like on the field sometimes, you know? Yeah, I mean, every Saturday you'd go out and you'd play in the mud, okay? All these cliches you can think of. You know, there was no sports medicine, okay? It was a, it was a sponge, basically, you know? There were no dives? Yeah, there were no... Well, I mean, <laughs> you, you would get the crap beaten out of you for... The, I mean, there, you know, and... So there was no such point being there was no such thing as a flashy player. Right. Uh, there was no such thing as 
someone who their speed was not a component of your game for example someone who's really really fast you know it was all this brute force you know brutal type of much more of a game everyone you know it, the, the weather is horrible i mean you grow up in places like sheffield which are just grim you know to, to live in it was like san jose a lot you know okay you know and so Best came, George Best came and exploded right out of that as the first ever like rock star, you know, pinup model kind of player, you know, and basically um, everything that you see like now, like David Beckham and, and Cristiano Ronaldo, th- those guys, I mean, the stage that they walk on as pop stars is was essentially built by George Best. You know, that's not, you can't really argue that. I mean, it's pretty, you know. And I was, so, I've wondered that because a, a lot of the Scottish and Irish uh, football players coming over to play soccer for, uh, for the San Jose Earthquakes, I, I was like, you know, how do these big guys even come, like, attract, were attracted to play for San Jose, considering that at the time when they were building the team, uh, the league at the time were, were considering other places. I was like, I think there's something magical about that. That sounds like it attracts such characters like that. Well, I don't think it was. Well, one part of it was was that this was a working class team, and then um, you have to understand, 1974 when this started. Um, this is before Pele had been signed with the Cosmos. This is before all of that hysteria and all the glitz and glamour of all that stuff had really happened yet. So this was the, the league was barely you know drawing more than five thousand people for any game anywhere okay and then and then they built a new team in san jose and we had the biggest attendance of any team in the league the first couple years afterwards after the cosmos exploded then all these other things happened but we're you know this team here is this who essentially helped you know give the whole sport uh a new optimism i guess you know and 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 a lot of the people coming over here were not superstars in their leagues they were people that were playing in second division or third division clubs in england and they just they would never have played against against anybody famous you know so they come over here and the league has pele and friends beckenbauer and garrett Mueller and johan cruyff and then now these guys who were playing in third division teams in england can come over here and play for us and play against all of those guys and they would never have played against any of those guys in europe you know so that was probably the reason another great thing in the beginning of this club was its marketing strategy where yeah. they were like practically genius considering its times in a lot of ways I see comparisons of what they did to social media in some ways. Right, exactly. Uh, where they went out and they met the people, but at the same time they created like these, these like, cards with yeah. stats on them, right, to give to the fans. And, yeah, and, and they really gave this connection to to the community. You know, like at times, you know, the people will have dinner at, at their fans' houses sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that happened all the time. Now, well, again, I mean, they had this, again, this, there had never been a professional sport in San Jose before this. There had been nothing, there was nothing here, okay? If you were a kid at that time, you went to Frontier Village or, or you went to the mall, okay? You know, Eastridge had just opened up, okay? A couple, I think, like 1971 or something, you know? So there was nothing, so they had to come to what was essentially an unknown city and sell this brand new sport. A lot of the immigrant population, it wasn't a brand new sport for them, you know? But, but to the native or to the, to the Americans who lived here, you know, it was, it was an unknown sport and these guys had to sell the entire thing. And it really was, you know, guerrilla marketing, you know, before that term was invented. And another big asset they had to attract people to the games was the world. I think he's world famous. Crazy George. Yeah. yeah, Crazy George. Yeah. He's still world. He's 71 now. And um, we're friends. I see him whenever he comes back to town. He's in the process of trying to move. He's been living back East for a long time, but he's in the process of trying to move back to the Bay area permanently. Um, But yeah, he comes, he still goes to like San Jose giants games and Mm. maybe one quakes game a year and they bring him out. But so he's, he's never stopped doing what he's doing, but now that he's, he's more of a, like a banquet dinner speaker because he's got a lot of stories and a lot of, a hell of a lot of stories that, you know, and this is where he started. Well, I think that was one of my favorite chapters in your book is the antics he put up on the stadium. So just bringing in bears. Yeah. He brought an actual bear to the, Field. Yeah, well, it, well, these are all the things that you could you could get away with in the seventies that you could not get away with now. You know, you couldn't bring bears on the field. You know, right before the game nowadays, you couldn't put a tiger out there and just let it sit there. You know, <laughs> I mean, 
And when we were kids, we would run behind the field, the goal and catch the balls. I mean, during the game, okay, you could, yeah. there was no security, okay, you know. So um, you could bring your own beer into the stands. You could bring ice chests. I mean, the whole thing was a whole different era than what goes on now. Again, again, you have to understand, this is before – this is the 70s. This is before ESPN existed. There was no – cable television at all there was right. you know there was no multi-million dollar sponsorships you know i mean this is th this is the same era when you would see the raiders you know like ken stabler and bolentnikov and those guys they would go out and get wasted friday night in the bars in public and then go to the game or saturday night and then go to the game the next day and then dominate everybody else you know <laughs> this is it's the same era i mean this is what people did in the 70s you know that you know it's just how people rolled back then you know and I think a great combination of that, of the marketing and having Chris and George, you know, entertain the crowd. Yeah. Really solidify this great fan base. Yeah. And the fan base is such a key uh, thing in your book, I feel, because they there's a lot of people that have been there from the beginning and are here now. And I feel like it's growing, growing. Well, it's hard to say. You know, the thing is, there's a lot of people that grew up with in the original era in the 70s who don't go to the games now. And there's thousands and thousands of people who are in that case. And there are lots of people out there at the games now that weren't even here when Landon Donovan was here. You know, So there's all these different... And this was part of the... This was the main reason of writing the book, really. I mean, I did this for the fans and you know, not for myself, you know, but... Because um, there's all these different eras of disconnected fans that really aren't, they don't feel like they're in the same group with each other and stuff, you know. So this would, if they read the book, then they'll feel a lot more emotionally connected to all this and they'll they'll feel like they're participating in something that is much more than just 10 years old, you know, that it's all just one multi-generational family, like any sports club should yeah. be. I mean, there's people that are at, 49ers games that have been out there since they've they played in Keysar. You know, there's people in Lambeau, you know, that have been, I mean, there are all these places that you, where you see that, you know, and unfortunately we have this big, long disconnected, you know, history, but it is connected. And, you know, that was the point of writing the book. And it, it, it did not help that the club was changing constantly. Yeah. yeah. The, the jerseys were changing. Well, the the, sport, the were changing. sport is changing. Yeah. yeah. So that was the, it, the sport never really totally took root here. Yeah. And then now, it, even the current league has only been here 20 years, which is not that long compared to, and you know, baseball, football, and, you know, hockey. There was a phase where they moved them to te Texas. And, yeah. and then the, the, I was laughing hard because you, you, you took a, a stab at the, at the jersey, the Scorpio. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. laughing because. Because that happened in the late nineties, right? Two thousand ninety six is when the league started. That's so for me, I, I like I was six year old at the time, I, yeah. I, and I do remember like that brought back a memory of like there's some ugly ass jerseys. I'm right. Well, if you go jerseys. look at if you go look at any team, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, again, this is part of all. Of this is part of the reason why you know the old school daily newspaper sports writers are still making fun of this you know and they're right you know in thinking that well this is no way this is ever going to be taken seriously you know and there's some truth to you know i mean you start a brand new league with these god-awful jerseys you let nike a shoe company decide what the names of the teams are you completely <laughs> disrespect all of the fans that are currently in the, the cities yeah. you know and it's you know which, so. by the way, I love the new jerseys. I think they have a great classical design to them. Yeah, I like the new. They're great, and they're wearing the 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 away kits. They're wearing white and red, and you know it's it's a great you know uh, nod well, to the old the original yeah. days. This was what was, 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 this is what they should have done twenty years ago. Look at know? the cover of your book right now. Yeah, you got three Scotsmen wearing the red jerseys. Right, right. You know, and which then then it talks about the era where I grew up. With Sounds of the Earthquakes. And this was the Landon Donovan era. Yeah, yeah. Which was a pretty exciting uh, time uh, for the Sounds of the Earthquakes. Right. I mean, Landon, you know, started in, in here in 2001. He was 19 years old. And we, everyone who was there, you know, we got to see, um, who, no one, everybody knew that he was probably one of the best American, one of the best players that the U.S. had ever produced, but nobody knew the degree that he would suddenly explode into the whole poster boy of the entire sport for the U.S., you know, and that's what happened. 
And um, he was originally going to leave after 2002, and then he stayed because well, he was on loan from Bayer Leverkusen, so we never really owned him, you know. So he so he, he was here for four years, and then was going to go back to Germany, and then that flopped, and he came back and decided to play for LA instead, you know. But which fucked things over for the fans. Like there's a chapter yeah. where the fans yeah. will put up, you know. Uh, uh, big posters. Of, that was <laughs> probably the best sporting event that has ever happened yeah. in, San, in the history of San Jose. That day <laughs> that, in 2000. I mean, that was exactly like being at a Barcelona-Real Madrid game. You know, yeah. Much smaller crowd, obviously, but that was the intensity of that game. It was it was like seeing, you know, Chivas, Chivas and, Ameri- and, and, you know, America somewhere in Mexico. Yeah. Or like, it would be like seeing, you know, a rivalry in Azteca or somewhere yeah. like that. Again, not nowhere near the crowd size, but, you know. But the, with the concept of a beloved uh, yeah, player he, on he, the he, other side of yeah. the, like, the villains. It's like, come on, he, dude. I mean, he was the hero. He was the only hero <laughs> that we had ever had. The only, yeah. and, then now, and then he abandoned the team right when they needed him the most. And right. then he comes back with the... You know, I mean, it'd be, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, I, I can't, there really is, there's a lot of other comparisons, you know, in, in domestic American sports, you know, I mean, like, it'd be like, you know, if Bumgarner leaves right now and then comes back to play for the Dodgers or something, you know, but um, th- th- that even that's not really a same comparison because, I mean, the Giants have a lot more history and a lot more famous players and all that, but, you know, but for this team, it was like, He's the here's the person that led the team when we finally did win something, okay? yeah. and then he goes and leaves and then wins the whole thing for the for L A. And, and st- instead, you know, so and that's what I I just love the reaction. And I, of the and fans. I, I, and yeah, and it, well, that's the way any fans in any soccer game. But well, you know, you're I mean, if, I mean, if, well, who's your team in Mexico? Who's your uh, I, I, my my dad follows Atlante, okay, which, which is they're, they're like a uh, working class from Mexico City, right? Right. But the rest of my family is America. Yeah, well, ra- well, imagine, well, yeah, well, imagine if you know your star player went and played for Chivas and came yeah. back and then oh. won it for them. That's like I, w- I would have been killed, dude. Yeah, that's the same. <laughs> it's the same thing, you know. And um, uh, and you know, so there's a lot, you know, and you know, Landon, you know, he again, you had this. There's a much more. It's not that simple, you know. The Quakes were about to be relocated to Houston. Everybody knew this was going to happen. And everybody was in denial about whether I mean, everybody knew, but everybody didn't want to believe it was going to happen, you know. And then so he knew that, and then you know he yeah. didn't get along with our general manager, who actually, or, I mean, was it Johnny Moore? No, Alexi Lawless was the general Lawless. manager. Okay. And Landon didn't get along with him very well at that time, at least. And so, and it was an uncertain future here. So there's no, re- I mean, you know, he just, and he's from LA and that's where his people are. And he's very, very close to his um, family. So that was, it made a lot of sense for him as a person to do that, you know? So I'm not one of these people that hates Landon forever. I would never say that, but you know, no. the fans as a fan. Yeah. I would say, yeah, you play for the enemy. That's what happens. Okay. But you know, I completely understand what he did, you know? Yeah. So. Which intrigued me to to now consider at looking at our current top players like Wondolowski. Yeah, he's one. Yeah, he's, he's one. one of them. And yeah. and that's the thing we have so many. Uh, uh, Alex uh, Sanchez, I believe. Or I fucked up his name too. I don't know. Well, there. Well, the thing that the team now is in a yet another state of rebuilding everything. You know, and it seems like Quakes fans are sick of hearing this because it seems like every single year we have to rebuild from the wreckage of the previous season. You know, nothing ever gets accomplished. It seems, you know, but they have a new stadium and. Um, at the end of last year, we had the worst team we've ever had, and I don't think it was a broken team. You know, they basically just threw away the whole season. You know, and. Um, I don't think any coach could have come in here and picked up that team and done anything with it, <laughs> you know. So they're they got a lot farther this year than anyone thought they would have. So it's they hired a new technical director and I think they're hiring another scouting position or something. So there's definitely and they re, they retooled the youth academy. So there's definitely some positive things that are moving in the right direction that were not there previously. So hmm. and it's another subject that I like to talk about a bit is the the changing of the venues they go from Spartan Stadium yeah, yeah. then to the uh, Buckshaw Stadium yeah and for the longest time they didn't really have the most equipped uh, you know locker rooms or any of that you know compared to other uh, stadiums soccer stadiums in, in the United States where a lot of these guys had to drive themselves <laughs> yeah well this is you know I mean it's that's part of 
the story you know i mean nobody thought they were good when they came back at, you know when they after the league brought them back as an as a team in 2008 you know nobody thought that we were going to be in buckshaw any longer than a couple of years you know so but it took several more years to get the stadium finalized than everyone thought it did so that wound up being seven seasons in that place and there is there was no way to get any I mean and then the the ownership group I'm pretty sure just decided that they aren't going to put massive amounts of money into finding real quality players and then you can't just go hire a million dollar player and bring him back and you don't even have your own locker room and stuff you know so they what wound up being a temporary you know stopgap thing wound up being seven years okay and then even in 2012 they managed to have the best record in the league and they should they probably were the best team but then you know again la knocked us out and and they won it instead you know but i think they won it that year i don't even remember but um you know so yeah there was no way to get any kind of serious operation going when you don't even have your own place you know yeah as a kid, I was confused because I remember seeing them at Spartan Stadium at one yeah. point. Then later on, I I went to go watch a game at Buckshaw. Right. And I was like, huh, it's too different. I don't recall it being the same place I was before. But now, the Avaya Stadium. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Avaya? Avaya. It's, I think it's fucking awesome. I think it's a great stadium. I, I think it's one of the – and what is the best thing about it is that it's totally unique. It, it's not a cookie-cutter stadium. There are definitely other stadiums in the league that are larger and have more perks and stuff, but you know, you know, almost all of them are cookie cutter places. You know, this is a place where it's facing the airport. You can stand there at this huge outdoor bar um, and look at the planes landing, and then turn around and watch the game. And you can see all these hanging banners from players that played here in the '70s, you know. And there's there's not many other. There's it's a totally unique place, and you see it and you think, well, yeah, that's San Jose's stadium you know it, you, you, you couldn't lift it up and put it anywhere else and you know, make it work i mean whereas every other place is basically cookie cutter you know? no, that, there, that, again i wouldn't say it's definitely not the best stadium in the league i mean there's definitely i mean there's definitely better stadiums capacity wise and they put you know but again i mean you know these other places put a lot more money into what into their stadiums and i don't know if they really they really got their money's worth. That's hard to say, you know. Kansas City is probably the best one. I don't know, but I haven't been there, so I shouldn't say, is, say is, any. Is of that so. the the Toyota Stadium? Is that the no, no? Kansas City has a brand new. I mean, I mean, you know, it's you know, again, this is all it's all relative, but you know, I think what we have the stadium we have is very. It's uh, it's something that every fan can be proud of. It's not without its issues, but yeah. you know, there's. You know. well, the fact that it's by the airport, I love. Every seat's I love a great decision. seat. It's yeah. every seat you can see everything. It's not. It's small enough to where you can't get lost. You can find anything in the stadium in like five minutes. You know, every, you can see the game from anywhere in the concourse. You know, um, so there's a lot of things they can still do. But you know, and you can get my book in all of the team stores. So that's also important. <laughs> um, but it's funny because before they decided to make that stadium and this is when they, they wanted to move once again this time, after coming back from Austin to, uh, or Houston I mean, Houston yeah. sorry after coming back from Houston they again considered so the fans put together this huge fundraiser at Cesar Chavez well though no, that was before that team left they had they had a they had a rally in 2004 to basically try and save the team from moving and they were able to buy the another season essentially is what happened and so that but after 2005 um AEG relocated the team and then they the, then brought them back at, and then Lou Wolf and John Fisher bought the team or took the option and then bought the team and brought them back as a expansion team in 2008 so but the fans were part of um saving the team for another season and putting it into place that the, all the records and the name and the moniker and all that should stay here. Because when the team was brought back in 2008, it, they, the, the, that current administration was not completely convinced that it should they should even still call it the Earthquakes. That's how stupid they were, you know. And then the fans had to basically drill that into their heads, you know. So... And, and that's what you're talking about, I assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's the overall – and we, we mentioned it earlier. 
for me the greatest aspect of this book is how involved these fans were yeah and how much those fans even till now are committed to their team and are and for me again and that's where the source of pride came from it's like fucking nay you know it's very San Jose of of being so underrated yeah of, yeah. of, of not being believed to achieve such things and yet you know fuck it we do what we can you know what I'm saying yeah, I mean that was the whole point of writing it, you know, was to again was just to put all this into perspective, and you know, because you know there are many different eras of fans, and it can seem very, very you know fickle at times, you know, with all these different pockets of fans coming and going over the years, especially if you've been around for a long time. So in this book, it'll put everything into a linear narrative to where you can no matter how old you are you can see where all of the blood has been spilled you know in the previous 40 years to just try and keep this thing here <laughs> okay you know yeah. and now it is here as long as the league doesn't collapse again you know do you think it, it's helping that the San Francisco 49ers well now Santa Clara 49ers are in such close proximity now oh i don't think so i don't think that has anything and then to do the with san jose really. sharks well the idea that the san jose and the surrounding areas are becoming a very sports heavy i don't i don't think that has i mean it helps having the sharks here i mean it helps um i think what the earthquakes did in the 70s definitely paved the way for the sharks to happen um it wasn't a if then thing or anything but i think it, it helps I, I think that this was the first sport that was here this was this is what paved the way for everything else you know so in a lot of ways this is you know san jose sport that's no disrespect to the sharks i'm a sharks yeah. fan like anybody else but i'm just but i think it's uh, the whole point of it is not to pit one against the other it's more just to you know just to say hey this is a, a this is a sports town like anything else you know and we should be proud of that if you're a sports fan of course you know not everybody cares about sports you know so but they won't care you know so they won't care about this but you know but if you are a sports person you know, there's lots going on here to you know celebrate now considering that you wrote about the past of the San Jose earthquakes how do you foresee the future for the signs, well, it just depends on the league, you know, because, you know, this, again, the league is not something that is operated in the way that soccer is done in the rest of the world. You know, there's no promotion and relegation. There's no situation like that. Every team has to basically buy their way into the league, you know, so it's a whole, they basically, they're trying to force cram, you know, uh, the world's sport into a domestic American sports you know, model. Okay. So it just depends on whether they can continue to make that work the right way. And so, cause you know, so that's the future. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Well, Gary, thank you for coming. I appreciate reading your book. You definitely made me a bigger fan. Well, thank you. Of the team. And I recommend anybody who, anybody who never doesn't even know who sounds like earthquakes is, but lived here all their lives to read this book. Definitely. Because it does bring a different perspective as opposed to, oh, yeah, it sounds like earthquakes. Yeah, they're around. It's more like, oh, shit, this is what they went through. Wow. Yeah. I should check up on them. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, I would say that you don't even have to be a soccer person to enjoy this book. I mean, if you're a fan of any team, if you're a diehard, obsessive, you know, fan of any sport, I think you'll like the book. And um, I think – um, there's enough San Jose history in there that I think even just regular San Jose people would like it, whether you like soccer or not, you know. And um, I, I tried to write it that way. I didn't try and write it as a sports. It is a sports book. It is about the earthquakes, but it's also about the eternal struggle of San Jose to be taken seriously also. You know, cause it's the same struggle. You know? hmm. All right, Gary, where can people find your stuff? The book you can get anywhere or anyhow that you prefer to buy your books. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Recycle Books. You can get it at Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. You can go to Avaya Stadium and get it in all of the team stores. Um, right now in November of 2015, you can go to Valley Fair and buy it at the team's kiosk they have right there. It's a great holiday gift. So. That would be a cool place to buy it. Um, so, you know, anywhere, really. And you still write for the Metro? People can catch I articles. still write my column in Metro every single week. And um, I do a lot of other stuff, trade magazine work and things like that for other places. But as far as San Jose goes, yeah, that's where you can find me. And before we go, you do poetry as well. 
Yeah, I write poetry. I've published a lot in the last, or a lot of individual poems in the last couple of years, and I'm trying to come up with a way to approach a publisher with a whole book of poetry. And that's that. I would like that to be the next book before I do anything other, anything more nonfiction. You know, a poetry but, book. Yeah, so. that's gonna be a super hard one. Yeah, there's more people trying to write poetry right now than there are people who want to read poetry. <laughs> so you know, but, you know <laughs> yeah, so, there's something said about that. So, but <laughs> but the good thing is that the amount of people trying to write poetry right now has increased dramatically over the last many years. So oh, there's yeah. there's more people right now trying to write poetry than ever before. And the, the good thing about it is that it, there's no money to be made. You know, so mm-hmm. it's just it's, uh, it seems like a me- <sighs> But you can look at it like a massive amount of people that are dedicated to doing something that has no profit even possible. So it's like almost like these people have just have accepted trying to throw capitalism out the window and just say, we're going to do this. I don't care what happens, you know. So that's that's the yeah. good thing about it. And there's it. several people here I credit that to, like Mighty Mike McGee. Yeah. Bosley. No, I don't mean San Jose. I mean across the whole country. Oh, really? I mean, right now, there are more people are trying to write poetry than they've, than ever before. Really? Like, across the whole country. Yeah, that's the We're having a, a United States renaissance of poetry here, huh? Well, hopefully. We'll see. You know? <laughs> but, but, no, Mike is definitely an inspiration for me. Definitely. Oh, for I mean, me ab- absolutely. He's, I mean, as far as San Jose goes, there was there may have been no poetry scene, you know, yeah. without you know his, you know, and attending his, his kitchen sessions. It's yeah. like, it hit me. It's like holy shit. Yeah, this is what's about. It's not about the fucking money. It's not yeah. about the fucking you know, being famous or anything like that. It's it's just being with other writers. Yeah, and sharing y- your stuff with them. Right, and being supportive. Yeah, so, I don't know. That's fucking. I mean, amazing. if you if you're trying to write just for the money, then you're not gonna get. I mean, it's really <laughs> it's just. Um, yeah, you won't be very happy to be honest. You're man. better off joining the the tech people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gary, pleasure having you here. Yes, thanks for having me.